Dr. Connor Sybil, welcome to the Ilsoy Advisor podcast. Thanks for being here today. Uh, we are going to talk about soybean success, no longer a secret. You gave a presentation at this year's Soybean Summit. And as I was sharing earlier, before we pressed record, um, your views of your presentation on YouTube are around 1400. So it's something, this is a topic people want to know, people want to talk about, and they want to hear. So I won't bury the lead. So Connor, tell us what is the secret to soybean success? Yeah, well, really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And what the secret is to soybean success, it's season long management. Um, you know, that's kind of the thing we're really seeing. If you're going to give it a good start, you got to have a strong finish. So high yield soybean is a season long commitment. Uh, and that's kind of sums up the whole talk in one, right? Um, season-long commitment. That would be the biggest success to high-yield soybean. So is that the answer I should give to farmers when they come up to me and they say, how do I get 90 bushel? How do I get 100 bushel? That's the answer you want me to give them. Yep, that's the easy one. But then, of course, they're always going to follow up with, well, what is season-long management? What does that look like? Um, so there are some specifics hidden throughout there, yes. So let's go ahead and dive in. So 2012, Fred Bilo had the six secrets of soybean success. And now at the recent Soybean Summit, you shared the 2024 version of the six secrets to soybean success. So just start with that. Um, tell us the different factors. We have weather as the first one and you, and you lump in planting dates. So talk about how that factors into soybean success. Yep. So when Dr. Bilo first developed this, you know, 12 years ago now, you think has the management factors that have the biggest influence on soybean yields changed? Uh, and the reality of it is it's really the same factors. Obviously, you know, we have new genetics and, and new technology to get there, but it's just understanding how those same factors uh, interact together today versus maybe a decade ago. And still, number one, the weather, right? Um, I always joke with farmers, if somebody has some sort of secret invention that's going to control the weather, I will invest everything I have today because, oh man, would you be able to rule uh, agriculture and yield if we could control the weather? And as a part of the weather, that really does, you know, not just define the whole season, right? Extreme weather events in season are certainly something that we always get a little nervous about. Um, but these days, it also really affects planting date. You know, some people say, where's planting date on your list of factors? Uh, and it's roped into the weather category because the weather determines how soon that field is fit to get a crop in the ground. And I know, Stephanie, feel free to jump in here. You're a big, big supporter of early soy soybean planting. You just had an article in the Farm Week Spring Planting Edition. Um, and it's a great practice, um, but there's still some people out there that aren't planting soybeans ahead of corn. Um, so there's there's something to that. But then also, Connor, in your presentation this year, the early planting day of April 12th didn't yield the highest two. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so we tend to see overall earlier planting. And, you know, for the reference to Illinois, I'd say that's going to be prior to May 10th, right? So definitely April and then into that first week, right? So I'm from Northern Illinois, um, thinking there, but obviously Southern Illinois, we're probably talking, you know, prior to May 5th as what that early planting would be. 
and we do see the last two years we've done a planting date study specifically. I think we'll get into some detail of that more uh, as we get into this podcast. Um, but in general, when we looked over the last eight years or so of our trials, we realized our highest untreated controls happened to come from those trials we got in the ground on that early end in that April window. Um, but as we learned this year, you can maybe go too early. Um, and actually not too long after the soybean summit, a big article came out. There's some really fantastic work out of North Carolina, Dr. Rachel Van, uh, who also found there might be a, a too early window. Uh, and so there's a peak optimum there, depending on where you're at. Uh, and that's just the conditions, the cool weather, what goes into how that soybean plant develops. Uh, and if you're too cool at the beginning, you can maybe stunt the growth and that doesn't give you the full yield potential. That being said, even though our first planting date in 2023 wasn't our highest yielding, it was still pretty darn good. And so it's, it's got an advantage still in the end, especially when we talk about, you know, later corn planting uh, might be some dual crop advantage. You know, later planted corn, grain fills later in the fall, cooler nights, and you actually extend the grain fill period, of course, as long as you don't go too late and get an early frost. But in general, we tend to see early planted soybean puts out more nodes, uh, longer season, more nodes is more pods, more pods is more seed, and all that seed is what you sell across the scales. So we're really, really excited about what the potential of early planting can bring. I was going to say, probably one of the, the first questions that you usually get when you talk about early planting is, what do you mean by early planting? What, what is the actual date? And so what I like to say is when the soils fit, and that depends, of course, on the region and the area that you are in the state and how fast, you know, does your soil drain? Is it tiled? Did you get too much rain earlier in the season? Um, in the south, they struggle with, it's not the temperatures necessarily, of course, to plant early, but they struggle because it's too wet. Um, so I think that's one of the first things. The second thing I wanted to dive into, uh, just because you probably didn't have time to go into it at the soybean summit, but as I visited a lot of farmers this, this sp last spring, um, there are some farmers that are actually planting deeper the earlier that they plant. And I just wanted to know if you had any comments on that. Yes. Uh, and I would agree the same thing. And, and I would say this, uh, even in our normal planting window, we're tending to put our seed a little deeper. I'm not really too afraid of two inches. Um, maybe I've heard, you know, early beans, two and a half. A um, couple things behind that to consider, right, seed size. So if you have really small seed, you know, they don't have as much to get out of the ground. So you might need to shallow it up, but large seed, but new seed genetics, have come a long way, especially I think for soybean. You know, corn, we've been breeding corn for high yield, high strong genetics quite extensively for a long time. And I think the potential for soybean is just not quite realized yet, but they've made large strides in the genetic potential of soybean um, and the seed treatments. So a good seed treatment with these new genetics, I think they're a little stronger coming out of the ground and you can put them a little deeper than maybe what we typically would. Um, so, I, you know, I like that inch and a half, two inch mark. And I think this year we even put a few, two and a quarter, keeping in mind, like you said, Stephanie, soil conditions. We learned this the hard way a few years ago on our corn, beautiful, light, fluffy ground. We planted our corn at about two and a half. And then those air, all that air settled out. And by the time, you know, three weeks later came in, uh, that two and a half became one and a half. 
So also understanding when you're doing your depth, what, you know, how fluffy is that soil? How much might it compress? Keeping in mind planning depth and final depth are two different things as well. I know I've, I've, I have made a lot of field calls for crusting um, for those people that are not, you know, doing practicing no-till situations. That's a nightmare as well. But actually I had some farmers saying they're going three inches deep, which I don't fully recommend, but I was observing a lot of those planted early April last year, maybe late March. And they actually, maybe it was just a fluke, but they were able to possibly miss that early frost that we had last year. So it's, it's interesting. And then as we plant later, I know you, you also, um, you played with planting depth that way too, right? Or um, I know we want to probably, let's go with population. A lot of people are, you know, wanting around a hundred thousand, I know, give or take a, you know, a couple thousand here and there, um, depending on where you are again. Um, but as you go later, a lot of people are planting thicker. Any comments on that? Yep. So the, the first comment I'll refer to um, regarding, you know, depth. The other thing too, that's, this is the same for any crop, right? Plant into moisture. I learned this the hard way when we did our planning date study in 2022, I said, oh, I got to maintain the same depth across all planting dates because that's got to be consistent. We were planting for target about one and a half, one and three quarter. And by the time we got to our June planting date, the soils were so dry. We put them in at that one and a half to one and three quarter, and they didn't come up for like three more weeks until the first rain. This year, we went ahead and we adapted the planting date or the depth for the conditions, the date we planted. Uh, and I do believe we had to go about two and a quarter on our June planting date where the moisture was and they came up in six days. So that's the other thing to consider. Look at that forecast, how soon till moisture. Now, if you're late March or early April, if they sit in the ground a little bit, that's not the end of the world, right? When you have time before that rain gets them going. But um, just considering as you're later planted, I would say planting depth is where's the moisture line? Definitely consider there. And then yes, we do see as you get later, the higher density is the way to recover some of that lost yield if you're late planted. Um, you know, I think we used to plant about 160,000. I'm hearing a lot more now 140. I think if you're in a good planting window, um, 100 to 120 final stand is no problem if you're, you know, prior to a ballpark at May 20th. As you get after that May 20th, sure, you probably want higher stands above 140 to maximize yield. I guess I have unfortunately witnessed, um, of course, you don't want to plan on that, but yeah, seeds, hopefully they are treated. Um, that treatment, hopefully it'll give you about a, a month or so, give or take a couple days of some, some protection against not just, you know, diseases, soil diseases, but also insects. But I think that's the other thing that I hear from farmers they are amazed um, in some instances in years past, planting early, how long those seeds sat in the ground. It's kind of crazy to think about. Yes. Uh, so as a researcher, when you're just out there, you know, you go back 10 days later and like, there's nothing up, right? You start worrying what's wrong. You know, is the trial done for? Do you have to replant? Uh, it's just amazing. They come up sometimes three weeks later, uh, four weeks later, and they just, you know, phenomenal yields. So yeah, it's, it shocks us too, but it's exciting when it happens, right? And, and to see them pull through. 
talking about seed treatment, you also had that on your list too, and we might jump around here, but um, you, not looking into the rankings so much, but seed treatment um, doesn't rank as high on your six secrets to success. Can you explain a little bit why? Yep. So seed treatment in general, uh, I really like, you know, especially early planting, those fungicides and insecticides have a huge role. As you get later planted and you're less time in the ground, there is some research out there that, you know, maybe those standard seed treatments uh, don't have as much of a value. But one of the things, you know, it's lower on the list, but everything on the list interacts, kind of goes back to the full season management approach. A good seed treatment ensures you get a strong start so that the other management factors can continue to push that yield ceiling. Um, so there's seed treatment, and one of the ways I think we've changed it, you know, when the Six Secrets originally developed in 2012, we were thinking seed treatment from that IPM standpoint, right? The pesticide seed treatments, fungicides, insecticides. Seed treatments come a long way in other areas outside of IPM, thinking inoculants, and our traditional slaving assumption with inoculant is those Brady rhizobiums, right? What can we put on the seed to get those nodules to start developing faster? because we know that's extremely important for soybean nitrogen. Uh, but when you talk to some farmers and even in our own research, we've had some good successes to Brady rhizobium inoculum and some failures as in no response, uh, plus or minus two bushels is where I'll kind of pencil that one in. So it seems kind of a, a coin toss random. And that's because in our Illinois soils, when we're on those long-term corn soybean rotations, there's just natural Brady rhizobium out there and they tend to colonize naturally. And so sometimes inoculating with Brady rhizobium doesn't always give us the gain. Where I'm getting excited is what I'll call alternative seed treatments uh, in the biological space, right? Which has just exploded recently. There's more than just Brady rhizobium. There's new bacillus type seed treatments. There's some new fungal treatments thinking um, arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, the AMF that we often hear acronyms. We're starting to toy with these a little bit um, and the bacillus gets interesting, but in the interest of time, I think what's been most consistent for us is not a microbial seed treatment, but we're really interested in molybdenum seed treatment. Now you gotta be a little careful, right? Too much of a good thing. Um, those micronutrients can go on a hot, uh, hot uh, rate, right? And be a little toxic, but at the right rate, we're doing molybdenum on seed and seeing about a two and a half bushel advantage to molybdenum seed treatment. Uh, and what's going on there, right? So radiorhizobium, as I said, they form the nodules and that's for end fixation. We, we all know this, but what we sometimes forget, molybdenum is very important for that process. You need molybdenum to do the fixation and then also to move the nitrogen into the plant and, and assimilate it into a form the plant can use. And because of that, we think it's like just giving the microbes the tools they need. So they need molybdenum to do the job. So we're just giving them that and then the native microbes in your soil have what they need. So I think I dragged on a little bit there, but seed treatment uh, is something that we're excited about from an alternative seed treatments or non-traditional approaches. Uh, and molybdenum seems to be one that uh, might be of interest moving forward. I know you said the B word in there, biologicals. I talked with Stephanie beforehand. I'm like, that's a whole another podcast episode. Um, definitely a hot topic that we won't get right into today, but no acknowledging it. And then some of these seed treatments as well in the study. 
before we move on real quick, I, I want to play devil's advocate real quick. And this is for both of you to answer. Say I'm a farmer. Um, I'm listening to this and still not yet convinced me to plant soybeans before corn. What do you say to those farmers that are still on, um, still wanting to do that? I guess I'll I'll start. I know within my experience, I feel like um, this has been more rapidly adopted overall um, in central Illinois. Um, when we talk about early, I would say early April to mid-April uh, planting. I would say based on some U of I research, usually your better yields are going to come from mid-April up to this point um, in general. And then I think over the last couple of years, uh, Northern Illinois and some in Southern Illinois have, have joined the game. Again, they're up against, up north, you are up against possible getting some some cold weather, of course. And then down south, like I mentioned before, they, they oftentimes are just, it's just too wet. And so they're up against these things. Um, but I think it just depends on the adopter and in, in my the, in my opinion and, and what I've experienced and even on our own farm where my brother just started by planting one field early, you know, and then the next year, maybe do it again. And then maybe the next year, you know, by now we're, we're playing, we're all in. Right. So he's, he's bought and sold on that. And I think that's how a lot of people are experiencing maybe doing cover crops or other new um, if they, I mean, strip till, of course you have to have all new equipment, but that's how they're maybe testing other things on their farm. And I think it's the same for early planting as we, we go forward. Yeah, I would agree with everything that you just said, Stephanie. And the number one thing, this is for corn and soybean. Um, you can't plant it early if the planter is not ready. Uh, and so the first thing I would say is make sure your planter is ready. So you can then, if you want to do it, have the option. Uh, and here's the good news. If the planner's ready and you decide it fits, um, well, at least that part's done and you can check that off the list. Um, and then exactly, right? So don't put the whole farm in this year, but try a field and see what happens. Or try, you know, if you have a little bit of flexibility and you're like, well, I could, but I, I just think I want to wait a week, put some strips in and then come back and put strips in next to it, right? And I understand weed management becomes a different conversation if you've got multiple planning dates in the field. Um, but just start slow and try it, just like any agronomic practice. You know, I'll use a seed treatment as an example. We're excited about it, but we don't have a ton of data on the molybdenum. So maybe try a field with the seed treatment. And then the other thing is always have a check strip if you're trying anything. Um, but in general, one, make sure the planner's ready. So if you decide to do it, you can. Uh, and don't put the whole farm in if you've never managed them before, because that might come up later in our discussion. We're starting to learn when you plant, might determine how you should manage. Um, so there's some considerations there as well. And then I would just chime in on the seed part of it. Um, you know, the seed has to be delivered, which in most cases uh, that, that has happened. <laughs> um, and then I know I've been getting a lot of seed treatment questions in the last week or so. Um, so people are gearing up to get their seed treatment on too. And he mentioned biologicals and of course with those types of products they have to be you know in a warm place and you you can't just put those on earlier so a lot of this planning has to take place i mean i think it's it's taking place now 
Yeah, that's an completely point. Yes. Connor, do you have anything to add to that? No, I was just going to say exactly, you know, reiterate um, if we could rephrase what Stephanie said, planning has to be now. Yes. So looking one thing, probably planning that has already happened is the genetics and variety. People have their seed ordered. Um, just give us a little bit of a highlight of what you found from your research when it came to genetics and variety. Yeah. So in general, regardless of planting date, we tend to see um, the longer maturity group you have, the higher the yields uh, and yield potential and then realized yield at the end. Um, you know, there is some thought as you plant later, you might put a uh, earlier maturity group in there to make sure you don't frost kill on it. And the last two years on our planting date study, we found that even the longer maturity groups when planted late still yield. And so in general, I'd hedge your bets towards you know, maybe increasing by one or two maturity groups compared to what you've traditionally been. Um, so there's, I think, a huge advantage there, and it's not any extra cost, right? It's just adding a few days to the season by putting that longer maturity group in there. Now, I will follow that up with, right? So if you're putting wheat in behind your soybean in the fall or you're cover cropping and not doing an overseed, there is advantage to having an earlier maturity group that you can get out earlier, right, or get the combine running um, earlier. So I'll never, you know, it, it, I love high yield uh, and we want, you know, to get as much yield as we can. So that's where I'm going to suggest the higher maturity groups, but understanding that those lower maturity groups that mature a little faster do have their place. And I'll bring it back to where I kind of started. Genetics these days have come a long way. And some of those earlier maturity groups can still put quite a uh, pack, quite a punch on yield, uh, even if they have a shorter season. But in general, longer maturity groups, regardless of planning date, tend to either increase your yield potential or at least maintain it. And I fully agree. I just constantly get uh, farmers, uh, crop consultants telling me, well, you know, the some of the earlier maturing um, stuff out there is yielding. And it, it very well is. I know it is. And it, it depends on the season. Um, I would also caution, we were getting a lot of questions on, planting earlier maturing soybeans to plant either like you said cover crops or wheat and I would just caution um, those especially in southern Illinois I think a lot of people are, are, are there's a lot of cover crops going on down there and so be very careful on what what variety you're choosing um, I would like one day I have a dream that we we treat soybean varieties like we do corn it we're, I don't we're not there yet but just you have to be very careful to to plant the right variety when you start pulling those early maturity varieties down south it just may not be suitable um, for the field for the conditions or or right have the right defense package for your field so be careful okay we've been hinting at um crop protection kind of throughout this conversation so far. And I will say we're not going to cover everything today. That's why we'll encourage people. If you go on YouTube, you can see Connor's full presentation from Soybean Summit. Just search soybean success, comma, no longer a secret, and it'll pop up on ISA's YouTube channel. But let's jump to foliar protection, um, Connor, and talk through those results of what you were seeing um, from these trials. Yep, so foliar protection for us, I should clarify, is fungicide with insecticide. Uh, if you're making that application and paying for that to go across the field, we see the value of putting the two together. 
Um, so fungicide with insecticide. And for us, we're keeping it simple, a one-time pass at R3. I know some of those uh, growers that are really pushing yields are sometimes toying with an earlier followed by a later application, you know, those R2 to, and then followed by like an R5. But we're in our research, and if you, you look at that presentation, that's all single application at R3. And regardless of conditions, planning dates, the other management factors in the background, we're seeing on average around a four bushel response the last two years, and I'll uh, mention those are drought years, where we had little disease pressure. Now, this is where the agronomist that loves high yield does have to have the IPM discussion, right? So those are prophylactic applications um, and understanding that these tools uh, do have some resistance implications if we overuse uh, without the presence of disease. But we tend to see this is where the season long management and the ROI comes in. You know, fungicides, while they do have the fungicide effect, also have a slight plant health benefit, a stay green. Anyone that has check strips know you go out in the field and you can tell where that fungicide was applied because those plants haven't quite senesced as fast as the untreated check strip. And so that's where if you're going to do early season management with fertility, if you're pushing your maturity group and planning date, that fungicide is the back end, all that yield potential you set, seed number. When you got a lot of mouths to feed, a lot of pods out there, you need the resources to feed them, keep them full. That's where foliar protection comes in. It's stay green, give the plant long enough to have the photosynthates to fill the seeds, the seed weight component to yield. Um, so I'm, again, I think I dragged down a little bit there, but uh, foliar protection, R3, and it's all about protecting the yield potential that you spent all your first half of the season working hard to set up. And, and not to bring up a bad subject, but um, we've had some pretty good years with um, you know, making significant money off the farm. I think going forward, I think I predict we'll start getting a lot of these questions on, you know, what can we cut back on as prices um, remain low for corn and soybeans? And I predict that, you know, some of these applications of possibly inputs such as fungicide, insecticide, you know, I think there's going to be questions, do we, we really need those um, in order to help with returns at the end of the year. Yep, and, and one of the things, we have a, another study that we're kind of coming out, this is Marcos Lohman's work. Uh, we looked at the soil test value and how it related to yield. And across all our planning dates, and this is going back many, many trials, there's a lot of data points behind this. But the general sum was the early planting had really no relationship of soil test and yields and the late planting did. And what this implies is later planted soybean tends to be more responsive to management uh, and from a nutrient perspective and think about it because they're behind, uh, right? They need any help they can to catch up. We go back to the conversation we had just a few minutes ago, early planted soybean grows so slow. And when it's growing slow, sometimes the soil can keep up. And so uh, we're kind of seeing early planted soybean has a high yield potential and it's not as nutrient responsive. And so that might be, you know, if you get the beans in early enough, holding back on some of those inputs, and I'm speaking now from the nutrient side, you may not need them as much on early planted soybean from an ROI perspective as you would on late planted. And I, I guess I'll um, not play devil's advocate here, but um, so I do think fertility is very important. I think we're going to make the assumption that, 
you guys are being good stewards of the land. You're keeping up on your fertility and your pH. But what myself is finding is, along with a lot of other crop consultants across the state, is um, some people are skimping on fertility. Uh, they have been in recent years. And last year, just with the drought, um, kind of brought it out. We're seeing a lot of issues with pH. Um, so I think this is a, an issue going forward. And we're going to continue to help do some outreach on it. But I didn't know, you know, fertility is just so important. If you had any other comments on that with soybeans, let us know. Yeah, well, and first pH. Yes, thank you for bringing that one up. Um, I think we've kind of neglected it over the last few years. And we cannot ignore a good, healthy pH. That is certainly something, you know, kind of goes to the basics. If you're not seeing response to in-season factors, it could be because the pH has lowered the yield ceiling. One thing on fertility and soybean, you know, what's the number one nutrient we always usually hear about? It's potassium. Um, and then it's, you know, uh, exemplified by the last two years being droughts and potassium deficiency showing up pretty strong. But we talk about potassium because soybean needs a lot of it, but that's all in the vegetative biomass. We, I don't hear enough talk about phosphorus and sulfur for soybean, and that's what fills the grain. You know, about 80% of the phosphorus uptake ends up in the grain. And so it's nutrient management is everything, right? You can have all the potassium to build a big biomass factory, but then you need things like phosphorus and sulfur to fill the seed that you're producing. So I do like fertility, yes, in general. And, um, you know, the comment about the planting date is something we're still diving into. And that's also where we have good soil tests to start with as a good point there. So fertility can be extremely important uh, in soybean. And I do think it does get overlooked, especially because we always think potassium. Uh, and then maybe the discussion after that goes into micronutrients foliar, but don't forget about the phosphorus needs of soybean either. I think it's just something that people take for granted um, and they fail to, to think about, they just assume that the pH is good and we've got the fertility, um, you know, we just don't always make that assumption, I guess. Agreed. So looking at everything um, all together, Connor, this was all conventional tillage, correct, in this study? Correct. Everything we would have would be conventional. So what would your uh, message be? I know we can't rehash, rehash everything we just talked about for no-till, uh, but if a no-till farmer came up to you and say, how do these um, secrets to soybean success, how do they apply to me? What would you tell them? Yep. So I would say the same concepts apply, um, but some of the different practices may have a little more value and some may be a little less, right? So no-till seed treatment uh, and the discussions we had about planting depth and seeding rate certainly come into play, right? So no-till can give us a little more challenging conditions um, coming out of the ground. So definitely the seed treatment conversation gets a little more serious there. Um, understanding planter and equipment, we haven't talked about that yet, but um, having the right planter settings and equipment to get that seed spaced correctly, uniformly, and at, across depth, that's really important. Uh, and, you know, I, I started, those don't really know this about me, um, I started my education thinking I was going to be an engineer. And then I decided that's too much math, but happily there are people that like math and they've done some phenomenal work on the equipment side. Um, that makes a huge impact, especially in the no-till scenario. 
Um, fertility, I think same thing, just as important, right? We're still filling feed at the end of the day and you need to ensure that soybean has the nutrients to do so. Uh, and then depending on, you know, the rotations and such, more residue on the surface is more opportunity for pathogens and inoculum to overwinter. So foliar protection certainly still very important in no-till as well. So I think a lot of it translates. I think just the emphasis on one factor over the other might change a little bit, uh, largely being on the seed trait and foliar protection side. You hit on something that I would like to see more research, or if you know of more research, I know that um, when I visited uh, our friends at Precision Planting, uh, they talk about spacing in soybeans. Um, we know it's important for corn. Um, I would love to know or hear your thoughts on what do you think about having, you know, good equidistant spacing between beans? Yeah, so I have nothing but, you know, my personal opinion on that, um, because as you said, we need more research to get some hard numbers to it. But I've heard enough testimonials uh, to where the more better the singulation, just like corn, soybean, you know, if you're too crowded to your neighbors, the, the way I'll give Sam Laskanich, our grad student, credit for this quote, right? How many of you love to be squeezed in the back seat of the car between your siblings? And you got that fight going on of, you know, quit touching me, quit touching me. It's the same concept uh, for a row crop. The better uniform spacing, whether you're corn or soybean, they're just going to be happier because they're less crowded. Nobody likes to be in a crowded room. So um, I think there's huge potential to just better singulation on soybean, giving you that, you know, two bushel bump. Um, you know, it doesn't seem like much, but across every acre, there, there's value there. Real quick, cover crops. I know the latest consensus said that farmers are adapting the cover crop practices more into their farm. How does that play into high yielding soybeans in your opinion? Yep. So two things on this, right? High yield soybean also means a lot more soybean residues and soybean stubble. So understanding that the conditions at the fall when you're putting the cover crop in might be different. If you're pushing yields on soybean, um, now you've got a different scenario that you're trying to drill into or broadcast into on the cover crop. Um, but this is where then high yield soybean, good nutrition, and that cover crop, there's a huge advantage there over the winter, but it does take nutrients up. And so we're working on, can you get the nutrients in the cover crop to release in that same season? You know, that they eventually release. And so they might feed the crop two years down the road. But is there management practices that we can do things like at termination, can we add something to the tank to maybe stimulate that cover crop to break down a little faster um, to release the nutrients during the season that soybean will then be growing? Uh, those are some of the things we're working on. Um, seeing some good success with that. Uh, and then also ensuring, you know, as you push yields, the things that typically were not limiting yield now start to, right? So you get the basics, the right seed selection, the right seed treatment. You're doing that foliar protection. You've got a good PK sulfur plan. Now the micronutrients are your limiting factors. So just understanding as you check certain things off the list that were limiting yield, something else is now limiting that top end. And so and I think there's huge value on the cover crop side, but to understanding the management to um, maintain those high soybean yields is things that we need to consider. And you've hit on sulfur three times now, not that I'm keeping track, um, but um, that is another huge um, hot topic. Um, that's not anything new. I know uh, Dr. Fernandez uh, worked 
did a lot of work with sulfur um, back in my day and earlier years um, when I was in school. And then now we have uh, Sean Castile, who's doing a lot of work with sulfur and, and helping with bean yields as well. And I just want to give him a shout out. We do have a presentation from Sean, Dr. Sean Castile um, from our Better Beans. Um, you can also find that on YouTube as well um, to learn more about his research with sulfur and soybeans. But I think uh, going forward, we, we have to you know, we're getting a lot of questions on it. It's another hot topic and uh, people want to know more. And so can you share a little bit more on sulfur with soybeans? Yeah, um, I mean, first thing I'll reiterate, Dr. Castile's work out of Purdue, um, has been doing this a little longer than we have and he's got some good insights to it. Why sulfur though, and why in recent years, yields are higher. And so, uh, but the ratios that plants need nutrients have stayed. So the same. So if you have higher yields, then you have a higher nutrient requirement. And suddenly we're asking more out of our soils than what is there in a given season. So that's why, right? It kind of comes back to, we've got potassium and the phosphorus in our soils. And as we push from 60 bushel soybeans to 70 to 80, now there's not enough sulfur that you, you know, what, what sulfur could get you 60 bushels may not get you to 70 or 80. And understanding those uh, we've put uh, ammonium thiosulfate in with the cover crop termination. One one year of this, first look at it, uh, as Kelsey kind of alluded to, what uh, we've been looking at, that seemed to be quite successful. Uh, we've two by zeroed, which is surface applied at planting, uh, ammonium thiosulfate on the planter and got a decent yield bump to that over a couple sites. Um, but yeah, really like the idea of sulfur on soybean because I think it's now limiting yields as we push the higher yield ceiling. Okay, my last question, unless, and Stephanie might have some more, but, um, or maybe my second to last question, I have two more, I uh, <laughs> cut you there. Anything that didn't make the list that you think should be uh, on farmers' minds when it comes to these different factors and these different management practices? Yeah, I mean, like I said, um, equipment, seed bed preparation, understanding those, right? So if you're cultivated, a good uniform seed bed, extremely important. If you're no-till, good row cleaners, setting a good base right where you're going to put the seed. Um, I think that's something, you know, we often overlook. We think, all right, it's in the ground. Now what do I do? Uh, understanding there's a lot of influence of what it takes to get it into the ground. Do not overlook that importance. And like as Stephanie mentioned, I think singulation is something that we're going to be hearing a lot more of moving forward. As we start to get those six secrets figured out, right? What is next? Uh, singulation might be the seventh secret on there. Uh, and who knows? Yet might move up the list as it becomes more and more important. So just thinking equipment side, that's both tillage prep if you're in those situations and definitely making sure the planter is suited best it can be for good uh, uniform depth and singulation. Just like we think corn, soybean would like the same thing. Um, that's kind of off the top of my head, the first one. I don't know if Stephanie has anything to add that to that and buy me a few minutes to, to think what I might add to that list. But No, my mind's just going nuts right now. Of course, I can't speak for our whole team, but I personally, if I had my wish list, I would love to work more with you 
um, just in general through our on-farm trialing um, and do more outreach um, on this equipment, um, setting up the planner, um, because it's just a huge thing right now that I think is also being overlooked and people have a lot of questions, especially as they move to new things like cover crops. And so then we have a lot of questions on planter settings and row cleaners, like you mentioned. So that's another big thing. But I guess you've already alluded to it, but that was one of my questions. I really don't have many more questions, just things that pop in my head, Kelsey. Um, but that's some of the things you just touched on. What are some things you'd like to potentially work on in the future and research going forward? Yeah, well, I'll give a shout out to Illinois Soybean Association. We've got a great field trial set up this upcoming summer. Uh, we're going to take another look at tissue testing uh, and kind of a different light, right? So soybean is unique. It's got what we call indeterminate growth. And that means you're putting new nodes and new leaves while flowering and putting pods on on the bottom end. And so what's happening at the top of the plant is actually very different from what's going on at the bottom of the plant. Uh, when you're starting to fill pods already. And so we're going to take a look at, you know, tissue sampling along the whole plant, not just at the top like we usually do. I'm excited about that moving forward. And I think, remind me of the question is you said, you know, what are the interests moving forward? Yes. And I will add on to that too, Connor. My last question is, what are you paying attention to right now that maybe isn't on our radar? Yep, that's a great question as well. Um, I think we do need, and this, you know, Stephanie alluded to this earlier, we need better research under the different big factors, i.e. the rotations and or tillage. I think, you know, we know a lot about cultivated soybeans and conventional tillage systems, but we are lacking on enough studies and data in the no-till systems, or we're really excited about this one, we just got a brand new strip till bar um, and there's a ton of questions on strip till, right? So we strip tilled and strip fertilized the corn. Do I put the soybeans right over that row? Do I shift, you know, off the old root ball? Do we rotate 15 inches and just go back and forth every year? Um, or is it a seven and a half inch shift? So every fourth year you're now back on the original line. So strip till and how to manage a you know, four to six year plan in a strip till scenario to optimize the yields of every crop is definitely something we're gonna push pretty hard for. Uh, and then that circles back to cover crops, right? So can you strip till cover crops? Can you leave some blank spaces? Uh, I believe there's some uh, work uh, with Dr. Mir Sajapur, you know, with um, managing cover crop species, right? So where next year's crop row is gonna go you change the species and then between rows is something different. Um, these are some exciting things you can do now that we have really good GPS systems that allow us to go right back on those lines or do things like simple three to four inch shifts. Um, so really excited about strip till management and repeat systems approach, right? What's the six year management, not just what can I do this season? And, and something that came up on our team, I think just Friday or was it a couple of days before, but you know, you know, there's potential where people are wanting to research, are there varieties that work better in strip-till or, you know, perhaps um, in a no-till setting compared to conventional till? And so there's just a lot of these questions. And one of the things I appreciate about your research, and I've had a little bit of experience in the past, is you're looking at a lot of different varieties from different 
um, companies. And so I appreciate that. Yeah. And, and you mentioned it too, right? We don't think of soybean varieties like we do when we're picking our corn hybrids. But I know in other parts of the world, that's the opposite. I mean, not just maturity group. That's an easy one to think about. But based on my management, do I need a bushy bean or a leggy bean, right? Thinking those different interactions. And certainly, and I, this is just like I said, I bet a bushy style bean versus a more leggy bean that changes how you should plant the density or the row spacing or how it may respond to a foliar protection. These are the questions we need to start taking record of. We do look at a lot of different varieties, um, but sadly we haven't yet <laughs> taken it beyond maturity group and or seed treatment on that seed. Um, start classifying our soybeans, right? Bushy versus tall, um, some other scenarios, some rooting architectures. I think there's a lot we don't quite think about with placement of varieties that could make some huge leaps and bounds. Um, and like I said from the beginning, just by changing the variety, that's no extra cost, but you might be able to get more yield out of it by putting the right genetic package for your system. Uh, and the fun thing about farming and agriculture is even the same farmer has different systems because they have different fields on their farm. So it's, it's a field to field management decision and not just a regional basis. Amen. Couldn't have said it better. Well, we have run out of time. I'm sure we could chat about this all day long. And I'll put a reminder out there of Dr. Connor Sibyl's um, presentation on Soybean Summit. Just YouTube, Google Soybean Success No Longer Secret. You can watch the full presentation there. Connor, I'm sure you'll be back on the podcast. We have way more to talk about. Um, not everything we can cover today. But thank you for taking the time and um, answering our questions and hopefully the farmers and industry that are listening have their minds racing a little bit like maybe Stephanie's is right now. So thank you. Thanks, Connor. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, really happy to do so. And being a university representative, we are public servants. So if anyone does have questions or follow-ups, our contact information is online. Uh, you know, we got cropphysiology.cropsci.illinois.edu. Or I think if you just Google search me, that link shows up. So um, please send those questions on. You know, there's there's no point in doing the research if what we answer uh, can't get back to the farm. So I think, you know, I'll, I'll, that tissue testing study we're doing, the Slavin Association, that came to me from a farmer. Uh, and so making sure that the projects we're doing are the answers that are needed uh, is something that we love to talk about. So. And you can find him on X, Twitter. He's active on there, too, if you're a fellow Twitter-er. -er. So, all right. Thanks, Connor, again. Appreciate it.